Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, December 13th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. We are uh, 18 days from New Year's, and I want to once again ask that you consider Commentary as part of your annual giving. Uh, Commentary, a nonprofit 501c3 organization that relies upon, depends upon, and is very grateful for the uh, charitable generosity of our listeners and our readers to help close and control our deficit. Um, so if you would go to www.commentary.org donate, uh, we would be very grateful. It is very important for us to have your support in order for us to continue doing what we're doing here five days a week to produce the daily website, to produce the uh, monthly magazine, uh, which we are going to talk about extensively on the show today. So that is www.commentary.org slash donate. A quick shout out to Commentary Podcast Stands, uh, Yaakov and Svi Wolf, uh, whom I met last night and who are uh, just, uh, uh, I, it's very important uh, that I do this because they can't decide whether they like our podcast better or Ben Shapiro's podcast better. And so in a, in a, in a, in a direct assault on Ben's popularity, I am calling them by name in order to win this small skirmish in an otherwise unwinnable war with our, with our good friend, Ben Shapiro with me as always executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we want to talk today uh, at some length, but I think maybe we'll try to just talk about whatever's in the political ferment first. But we want to talk about Christine's uh, lead article in the January commentary, which should be up online now or by the time you're, you're listening to this called The New Misogyny, a very important, uh, very original piece um, and very provocative about uh, the ways in which trans trans ideology is now uh, sort of becoming uh, something that uh, early early feminists, early supporters of equal rights for women and egalitarian standards between women and men would never conceivably recognize the kind of abolition of femaleness as a as a as a genuine stark human category. So we will we'll go into that in a bit. Uh, once again, I think we find ourselves in the Omicron situation where the entire world is going bananas. Britain is like locking down. Boris Johnson is in apparently a heap of trouble because of the discovery that uh, that uh, he uh, threw an unmasked party at Christmas time last year when uh, they basically canceled Christmas like Alan Rickman and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, the sheriff of Nottingham canceling Christmas. Um, and yet he decided that, you know, this didn't apply to him. I, I don't know what is and what is not survivable in a country like that. That's pretty, pretty bad. And the idea that he would attempt to respond to this by cracking down on human interaction in England because of Omicron 
uh, I don't know. I'm a very amused by Boris. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think I've told this anecdote once that I, when I met him, he's five years younger than I am. And I met him and he said, Oh my God, I've been reading you since I was a child, which really made me feel both. I was both pleased and horrified and kind of sickened at all at the same time, which seems to be a lot of the reaction to Boris Johnson. Um, but so there's that reaction. There is, you know, travel bans and this and that. And the way the news is covering this, which is it's highly contagious. Cases are doubling every four or five days and all of that. And we still, as far as I can tell, there was a there was a kind of controversy over the weekend because uh, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett announced, you know, a fourth booster shot or something like that in response to or second, where you call that a second booster shot, a fourth shot. Uh, in reaction to Omicron. And uh, some people went, what, oh, this is crazy. Like, what are you doing? And he was like, there were two kids died in, in Britain over the weekend. And uh, apparently this may, there was a news story that said two kids died and they were in the hospital and they died. And then they, they then also tested positive for Omicron, though they may have died for other causes. Aside from that, we don't seem to have a confirmed death from this variant. And uh, Abe, how many well, weeks? How many weeks uh, should we wait now? Do you, or, uh, you guys, how many weeks? We'll know better in how many weeks? It's, it's forever two weeks. It's two weeks. Forever two weeks. Well, it's now. I think we're now six to seven weeks into Omicron. There's literally not a confirmed death. Am I? Am I? Am I misunderstanding well, Boris this? Boris Johnson did say did say that someone died in Britain, uh, but okay. I only heard one. I only heard one. Right. Okay, yeah. so one. So he said one. Bennett said two. That's, but the fact that it has this quality of rumor to it, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, as we approach eight hundred thousand deaths from COVID in the United States, not a single one of them is from the Omicron variant, which has dominated the news. I th is it? It's this is December thirteenth. So has it been a month? No, no, like we not quite three. No, weeks but it, but it's been the two okay, weeks. Three weeks. Okay, okay. Oh, it was just was it just Thanksgiving. before Thanksgiving, or it was it the, was the night of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. <laughs> that it broke, and then it was Friday that the markets collapsed and the universe, you know, closed up. Okay, so it's three weeks. So okay, you know, if there's a if there's a highly contagious variant, it's getting a lot of people sick. There are some anecdotal evidence to suggest that it is getting kids sick. Not that they're dying, not that they're being hospitalized, but that they're testing positive in greater numbers like little kids. But we are, I, I, this is, we're, we're getting into some science fictional areas here where we are making massive moves, planet, planetary moves against something that has yet to prove that it is deadly. Or controllable. My, we're controllable. And now we're no longer talking about bad outcomes in hospitals or even death. We're talking about case rates, just transmission alone. And if that's the goal to control transmission, we have every indication that that's not possible. And we're doing a lot of very harmful self doing self harm in the process of trying to achieve an outcome that cannot be achieved. It is madness. And it's yeah. no longer about health. I and mean, public health is absolutely answer ancillary. It is time to admit that this is a contest between competing psychological dispositions and theories of social organization that will be decided at the ballot box, not in the CDC. 
See, I've become a total convert to Noah's uh, argument from that he's made over the last few weeks about how it, it's it's got to be a political argument they're making because we, we should be looking at hospitalizations and death rates for this variant. That's the only thing that matters post-vaccination is how many breakthrough cases are, are getting through and how many of those cases turn out to be deadly. And what we know from it, it, this was true of Delta as well. Even the breakthrough cases were not deadly. Instead, we're looking at transmission and case rates. So I agree. That's crazy. I would also say I would give a shout out to our friend Josh Krashauer at National Journal, who had an excellent column over the weekend, which talked about some of the political balancing act and what the Biden administration in particular needs to do now to get a handle on where they're going with dealing with COVID. And he does point to the governor, uh, Jared Polis of, of Colorado, as being an example of one of the few Democrats who's actually trying to weigh real risks and talking about things like, well, before vaccines, we had to have strict social distancing and mask mandates, but now we have vaccines. So those are the kinds of things that we don't need to be as draconian about. Reasonable stuff that we all obviously have been, we share in, in, in that view, but it's an exception on the left still. Polis said, by now, we got to say that if you get it, it's your own dang fault. I mean, he literally said that. Now, that obviously isn't true. Uh, of kids under five. Um, but it's now pretty much true of every American five and old over. And can I just add unvaccinated children zero to five are at lower risk than vaccinated adults of having severe complications right. unless they are an extremely small mi minority who has a pre-existing condition. Right. But I'm just saying that in, in, in Polis's defense or whatever, to make Polis's argument even stronger, we now have coverage by vaccine of everyone in the country five and over. The Kaiser Family Foundation, I believe, did a study that suggests it's I mean, and, you know, I didn't really go into the innards, but it sort of makes logical sense, suggests that. This year, this year that now the covid death number outranks last year. There were 162,000 preventable deaths due to lack of vaccination. 162,000 preventable deaths. That is horrifying beyond belief. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how people are going to be able to stay up at night thinking that they might have contributed to an atmosphere in which more than 150,000 people found got emotional and 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 uh, support for the decision to not protect themselves and died from the disease it's not that it's the fault of anybody who you know said no no, no the vaccine should wait or whatever they said that's a that's an astounding factoid and we are now at the point where if you know about that you know about the vaccines you know about it's like enough already all the only argument that you can possibly make for these lockdowns and restrictions is to save kids who cannot be protected from disease. And now everybody over five has a methodology by which they can be protected from disease. And kids under four are really not at risk. So I so uh, uh, no, I interrupted you. So I want to go back to what you were going to say about uh, yeah Josh's um piece. just briefly that uh, on josh's column which i agree with because he's speaking to me um but he's not speaking to to uh the democratic uh audience uh who, who the president is speaking to and who i i think this white house has every reason to believe that they have in their view struck a middle way 
that they are balancing these competing interests in a way that is striving for the sweet spot because they hear a little bit from us who is, thinks all of this is, is excessive and unjustified at this point. But they're also hearing from the public health apparatus and from uh, a, pro a political psychological persuasion on the left that is amenable to any and all onerous draconian restrictions on social and economic activity. They're hearing from those people too, and they're not going maximalist on them. They're not trying to stop interstate commerce, for example, like Liana Wen wants. Uh, you know, they're not going forward and implementing, uh, trying to trying to persuade businesses to pursue a national mask mandate while they're pursuing a you know massive vaccine mandate, which voices on their side of the aisle want. Um, so in their in their view, they are doing their best to not be crazy um, because a lot of people want them to be crazy. Now, we don't think they're striking the best balance, but they certainly probably do, in part because polling still suggests that the public wants this sort of thing. There was an ABC News poll out yesterday, terrible poll for Joe Biden all across the board and including his handling of covid, which is now approaching underwater. He's almost underwater, not quite. Um, it's, it's a pretty even split. But in that poll, it showed that most Americans want mask mandates everywhere they go. The vast majority want mask mandates everywhere. The majority support vaccine mandates. Now, do, the, do their behaviors suggest that they really believe that? No, not at all, in fact. But they're telling pollsters that that's the socially desirable thing to say. And that's what this White House hears. I believe that people want ma vaccine mandates. 84% of Americans over the age of 18, who are presumably the people being polled, have had at least one shot. 84%. I see yeah, absolutely it was something no mask mandates was to... what struck out at me. I think it was something like seven and 10 right. were pro mask mandates. Now, right. are 70% of people wearing masks everywhere they go? Dear no, listener? But, <laughs> right. But, I'm, but, but I mean, if we try to separate out, if we tease out some of these strains, right, that the Biden administration is hearing this from this polling, it has reason to think that vaccination is wildly popular. 85%, 84% of Americans have had at least one shot, okay? That's an astounding number if you sort of over the age of 18. That's a pretty astounding number. You can't, you can't argue with it. It's there, it's hard and fast. And so um, the, the opposition to mask, to, to vaccine mandates, um, is, is interesting because it then becomes mostly philosophical. It is, should the government control your behavior? And a lot of people think that it really shouldn't, which means that the persuasion campaign that we've heard isn't working and we need to redouble and now we need people to get boosters and maybe get more boosters and all of that has actually been wildly successful. Uh, uh, but, but with one caveat, and I think this is where you could see those numbers going down about mandates. You have people uh, in this administration, you have, you have Anthony Fauci signaling every few weeks, well, maybe we'll have to change the definition of what's fully vaccinated. We're gonna move, we're gonna move those goalposts again. And I think at this point, if they keep saying you're gonna need, you know, you have to be fully vaccinated is two shots plus a booster. That's the new standard for, for any sort of uh, requirement. People will rebel against that. And then furthermore, I think one of the things that Polis said in the in the piece that, that Josh wrote, which really struck me, especially because it came from a libertarian leaning Democrat, was when he said, public health officials don't have the right to tell you what to wear and what to do and it, or what to wear in particular when he was speaking to mask mandates. And that's something we've been saying for a long time. But to see someone on the other side of the aisle acknowledge that people were chafing against that 
it wasn't just the government. It's specifically public health officials. And that the credibility of those officials right now is still under attack. But I, I don't see from Biden's perspective how he can come out and say, OK, this is it. This is as good as it gets. Let's return to normal. He set himself a different goal and he was very vocal about it. Um, and as it turns out, it looks like it was an impossible goal. Um, there is no shutting down the virus from the White House. And that is what he said he would do. How can he come out now and say, actually, we're going to let it rage? Not really raging, but 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 given a certain uh, way of looking at the, 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 the data, we're going to let it go. And this is it. Go back to normal. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Right. I mean, they're just incapable of that level of humility. Jared, in, in any Jared. aspect of, of governance, I mean, there's no humility on the on the progressive left, but certainly not when it comes to this, which they genuinely believed, I think, that a, a, a certain level of bureaucratic competence that was absent in the Trump administration, apply that and you wrap your hands around this thing. I think they really thought that they could do that. Jared Polis is a very interesting political case here. Uh, he is in a state that was red to purple. Uh, I mean, elected a Republican senator and uh, by by a large margin in 2014, and uh, Cory Gardner uh, basically has shifted to the left. Has all this libertarian has, has weird political cross currents, like big evangelical community around Colorado Springs, very libertarian. You know, first state to decriminalize marijuana, all of that. I think he is a fascinating bellwether of the political atmosphere in the United States as we go into 2022. We look at this polling. If you look at what the polling says about the generic ballot between Republicans and Democrats and Biden's polling collapsing and inflation and this and that and the other thing, you know, you hear these numbers that are now being brooded about, you know, 60 seats in the House and, you know, seven, if that's the case, many seats in the Senate, whatever. I, I don't know what the numbers will be, but I think there is reason to think that there is a political cataclysm coming for Democrats that we don't really understand the nature of yet, because you have almost every major issue and some issues that have been invented and basically created over the last two years that are going right for their jugular because we have the COVID reaction, which triggers uh, libertarian and, you know, you know, don't tread on me feelings. You have the schooling stuff, none of which is now a positive for Democrats, I mean, or is very close to not being a positive for Democrats when it's an issue that Democrats were 20 points ahead on routinely over the last, I don't know, two generations. You have inflation, you have the supply chain problems, you have America standing in the world and the, and the aggressive behavior of people abroad. I don't know what issue set is going to be favorable to them and the cake is being baked right now. Add wokeness, add cancellation, add the stuff that I know everyone just cites Virginia and Virginia and Virginia because Yunkin was there and it's not Trump and we're trying to blah, blah, blah. But that was in chrysalis 
Jared Polis is responding to something real in a state in which there are interesting ideological cross currents. Right. There he aren't is that no many... libertarian either. I would challenge no, that he, because right. he's very famously during the, you know, when we were talking about the Title IX changes and the uh, incredible unjust uh, treatment of people who weren't accused of any sort of crime in these star chambers on college campuses, he famously turned William Blackstone's ratio on its head and talked about how it would be much better to, to convict 10 people if one was guilty of this, yeah. or, you know. So that he's, to the extent that that demonstrates that he he knows where the the wind is blowing, so to speak, within his party, then that's an and I guess evidence of it. Yeah, but, we should say he's responsive to the libertarian aspects of his electorate. Yeah, that's and always was. And Colorado yeah. at no point was the you know draconian lockdown state, even right. in twenty twenty. But, but here's my here's my point. Colorado is a democratic state, but it's not that democratic. And it wasn't too long ago, like Virginia, that it was very mixed and you had had no idea which way these races were going to go. Right. Democratic governors, Republican senators, crazy right wing House members. Good, you know, sort of like non crazy House members who could be convinced to do things otherwise. Um, uh all kinds of stuff like that. And it's all changed uh, because, you know, uh, uh, Democrats won two elections, Polis won, you know, I don't know what the what the Biden margin was, but it was pretty high. Hillary margin was pretty high. Everything is moving very fast. And the idea, you know, that we have this whip crack back to the center right in Virginia that could be paralleled all over the place in places like New Jersey, where, you know, we saw this 13 point shift toward the Republican gubernatorial candidate. I mean, there are states all over the country in which a 13 point shift is a political earthquake. You know, I mean, it's New York isn't going to probably go Republican and, you know, California isn't going to go Republican or whatever, but I, I, this that is you could have the, five or six seats in the delegation turn Republican in each or more. States. Right. More. I mean, it's just the delegation is what's 38. I think there are 38 congressmen from California. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just waiting to see. So Kathy Hochul, the new the newly installed, you know, governor of New York after Andrew Cuomo's resignation herself went draconian. Right. With with with. Uh, Indoor mask mandate all over the state, unless you have a vaccination requirement and you'll get fined thousands of dollars if by, by the state if your business doesn't have a vaccine requirement. And again, like I say, that's actually like vaccine mandates in a state like New York make, I mean, I think people sort of like them, but canceling an elective surgeries mm-hmm. in anticipation of a wave of hospitalizations that will never materialize based on what we know already. And yeah. partying with political supporters maskless indoors, the say, like a few, like a week after she makes this right. mandate, right. like all right. good the Boris Johnson, right? The Bo- and 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 let's you know be frank, like this epidemic of depression, suicidal ideation. Fifty-one percent of girls reporting suicidal teenage girls reporting suicidal thoughts. Uh, like this is all. They are the party in power. It's a 
it's a there is a there is an apocalypse coming for them and apocalypses don't follow a straight line it's like well you know i mean candidate selection herschel walker could really that could really be the kind of choice that could really it's like if people are going into the polls to say what you've done over the last two years is unconscionable. Donald Duck can win elections like that. You know, I mean, we saw this in 1980, by the way. Weird people got elected, brought in by Reagan in the Reagan landslide when the Senate went um, 10, I think Republicans won 12 seats in the Senate. And there were kind of like gimme candidates. I mean, not even unimpressive people. There was a guy named Chick Hecht in Nevada. There was Nevada, excuse me. There was... Um, there was Jeremiah Denton in Alabama. I mean, who was a who was a, a a nut, but kind of a nice guy, and had been a had been a Hanoi Hilton resident, and stuff. And like no one thought that anything like this could happen. And this just huge wave of people just came in all at once because the public was ready to say, "We gave you, we gave it to you, and we don't like where the country is." And we do have these eerie parallels, right? Inflation world instability uh weird lunatic incompetence i don't know it's sort of and we're all again i mean it's it's 11 months till the election but if I mean, the cake is halfway baked you know and you take it out of the oven now it'll still bake on the stovetop without being in the oven it'll keep I'm, cooking there, there's also you know the sort of woke social justicey stuff that where i think the democrats thought that they that the country was with them uh, on all this stuff because I think the country was, um, but I think the American people are are fickle enough that the public's already rejected this this program and and uh, you know the the party sort of hasn't is, is still has to play catch up to that. That's why I think the polling is is misleading them and giving them every indication that the public loves draconian measures, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, what have you. I, I think that's the right thing to say. I don't think that reflects public public attitudes. I really don't. California, well, the, the, there's, oh, sorry. I was just going to say to Abe's point that there's also, y'all mentioned, Noah mentioned the lack of humility in the Biden administration. There remains a, a huge amount of hubris and a lack of humility among the social activist class that that's, that has been pushing all of this. No recognition of any uh, you know response by the public that might be negative. In fact, the more the public says, eh, I'm not so sure this might be going too far, the more they're called bigots. And you do see this. I mean, you saw this in perfect encapsulation. We talked about the, the Jesse Smollett case last week a little bit, but the Black Lives Matter statement in defense of Jesse Smollett, or as the wonderful Dave Chappelle calls him, Juicy Smollett, um, th that defense encapsulates what a lot of us were long saying about Black Lives Matter and its affiliated you know, activist groups, which is they do not embrace a reality that the rest of this country sees as, and this is not to say there aren't obvious racial justice issues but, that this country but, needs to tackle. You know the weird thing about Jesse, the Jesse Smollett verdict, right? This is now three verdicts in a row in which highly charged racial cases, juries, came to entirely sensible verdicts based on the evidence, right? We have the Aubrey uh, killing in Alabama. We have Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin. We now have Jesse Smollett in, in Illinois and Chicago. One of the things about this is the question of what it is that Americans in the form of juries think is a crime. And I think that there is a grave offense that people, again, aren't getting to the bottom of in the notion of a city, a washing crime like Chicago, that finds itself 
on the, in the grips of a fake crime in which nothing happened. Somebody was using the fact of fear of crime and fear of racism and this as a negotiating tool for his multi-million dollar acting contract while people were being shot four miles south of the Walgreens where he was supposedly out buying eggs at two o'clock in the morning when it was 20 degrees below zero. And the credulousness with which he was greeted, there's a pretty amazing story in the New York Times today about, about Los Angeles and about the crisis of governance in Los Angeles that goes to not only crime uh, and, you know, these flash, these flash burglary mobs and stuff, but homeless encampments that have opened up all over the city. And if you read the story, which is about how people in Los Angeles can't stand it anymore, they live in totally conventional middle to upper middle class neighborhoods like Fairfax, and they're homeless encampments in Fairfax. And the whole question is, oh, dear, there's home. It's so the homeless problem is just it's out. It's so sad. Look at these. It's all this. It's like there are four million people in Los Angeles. They don't want to live with people living on on the streets in front of them. And the entire public conversation on the part of liberals and the left says you are not allowed to say that because you will seem uncompassionate and fine. They won't say it, but they're going to say it somewhere where they go, get to go somewhere anonymous and private and cast a ballot. And there was a guy on the ballot for mayor of Los Angeles, it turns out, named Rick Caruso, who runs this mall called The Grove. If you've ever been to L.A., you've probably been to The Grove. It's got a little choo-choo train that runs through it and a movie theater. And, it, you know, big. it's right next to the farmer's market and all of that. And there have been flash mob burglaries at The Grove. And he basically is apparently seriously considering a run for mayor in which he'll say, I'm a businessman. And if we don't do something, I'm going to close my mall. Everybody is going to move out of this city and we're going to turn into Detroit. You think that message might not resonate next November? In a city that probably, you know, in a weird city with weird political dynamics, in which, of course, I'm sure Republican, I mean, I don't know, there, there have been Republican, I don't know. What do you, People aren't that, unwilling to say that they're unnerved by the crime, though. I mean, in, in terms of polling, that registers. You can see, right. you can see that registering. I, I, it's different for COVID a little bit because there's, there's still psychological and desirability biases at, at work that people actually do really dislike COVID and want to get rid of it. And we'll do, and we are willing to make sacrifices to that extent. Um, but the polling is mis misleading insofar as the people who are energized to get out of this political condition, not the, not the public health aspect of it are more energized to go to the polls and vote against it than the people who support it are, are motivated to go vote for it. And that was the case in the 2021 elections. Essentially afterwards, the analysis was, okay, well, everybody's actually fed up with schools being closed and they don't appreciate schools being closed and they're revolting against schools being closed or partially closed or hybridized, whatever, whatever you think it was. But if you want, if you looked at the polling data before the election, you saw that a lot of adults, a majority of adults were perfectly happy to have cool schools closed or partially open or what have you for the duration of the pandemic. It was what was necessary. If you looked at the polls, you saw, okay, we're on the right side of the public here, but the public doesn't vote. 
motivated constituencies do. And the people who were motivated to vote against this were way more motivated than the people who supported it. And that's what's going to happen in a midterm. We're coming up on a midterm. It's not a general election. It's going to be a smaller, motivated, energized electorate, most of them energized by voting against the party in power, which is the traditional dynamic. And then you fuel that fire with all these other negative conditions that you're talking about, some of which won't register in the polls ahead of election day. Uh, so the savage irony here is that the person, the people that Biden, the person that Biden should be listening to is Ted Cruz. Biden and the Democrats were smart. They'd be listening to Ted Cruz. They would shift field and listen to Republicans and skeptics and try somehow to pull their chestnuts out of the fire. And that is unimaginable to them. You know, and I don't mean I'm not going to compare Ted Cruz to Winston Churchill. God knows I'm not comparing Ted Cruz to, or anybody to Winston Churchill. But you go back and you look at the debates in the 30s and Churchill, you know, is there as the backbencher saying, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. This you do X. There's going to be Y consequence. This is the way the world works. And the entire body of public opinion in England is like, no, 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 no. You know, we make do. You know, it's like this guy who is effectively like a gadfly backbencher, you know, uh, considered a general weirdo, you know, ends up being the only person in the country who was saying, who predicted, who saw it coming, said the right thing, and basically ended up running the country during the second world war no there is no republican like that we don't have the same dynamic but um every message that biden is getting is the wrong message every single message including continuing to push build back better which is stupid because we are on the heels of you know this like seven percent inflation rate and he wants a giant government spending program and people are economically illiterate, but that doesn't mean they're not going to go. I what? I don't really can. I don't understand how this isn't going to cost me more. Uh, and also, it's probably going to cost more than they say it's going to cost. And even there, the polling, which supposedly supports all the policies in Build Back Better, is now you know ten points, seven to ten points underwater. But he can't hear that. They can't hear it. It's fascinating. Like they don't have somebody in their ear saying, Caesar, thou art mortal. They don't seem to have a pollster who says, we are heading for the, you know, we're heading for the cliff wall. They won't listen. Well, they're not listening to that. <laughs> they're right. listening to the people around them who are saying the only thing that will save us next November is to pass this massive spending bill and pass our entire agenda. And then we have something to talk about. That's all they say. They say, oh, listen. We need this. Otherwise, we're going to get shellacked. Look, it's the holidays and you deserve a gift. How about a gift that keeps on giving you joy and comfort every day all year long? A gift that looks as good as it feels and a gift that will actually pay for itself in terms of how much more productive you'll be at work. You know what I'm talking about? It's the X chair. By far the most comfortable and ergonomic chair I've ever used. And honestly, it's also probably the coolest looking piece of furniture I own. Not only is the X chair the world's greatest office chair, but with its patented LMX technology, it doubles as a massage chair and can either cool or warm your back. Can your office chair do that? I don't think so. So now is the perfect time to purchase an X chair. Buy early, buy now, and here's X chair's holiday gift to you. 
Save $100 off your X chair just by purchasing it at xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. X chair has that 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you know, you've heard me say it, you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and save xchaircommentary.com. Christine Rosen, let us discuss the new misogyny, your lead article in the January issue of commentary. It's very nervy. Uh, it's, uh, it, it speaks uncomfortable truths to uh, totalitarian power structures. Uh, give us a sense of what it is that you say in the piece. Um, well, first of all, I want to note that it did begin as a conversation with you, John. So you will share in the in the, uh, I, the infamy I, that <laughs> you. I'm sorry. This is all on you. I don't have That's a byline. <laughs> I I have no. I have plausible deniability here. <laughs> this is true. Um, okay. Well, actually, it did start as a as a conversation about the different waves of feminism. Right, first wave feminism, second wave feminism, third wave feminism. We are now in the midst of what a lot of people have said is the fourth wave of fem- feminism, which is pursuing not just greater rights for women, but the expansion of the definition of gender. And um, what I think is is a very pernicious trend, which is the uh, redefinition of biological sex as part of a choice or an identity and the denial of the reality of biological sex. And I want to make very clear, there's a real distinction here between anyone who wants to, uh, about gender expression, which is someone who is born male or female who wants to live their lives as someone of the other gender. I have no problem with that. I know some of my conservative friends have problems with that. I don't, I, that's fine with me. What I, what I am taking on here and what I think is actually a new form of misogyny is the denial of biological realities of male and female. That is a fact. That's not a fact we can wish away. That's not a fact we should argue away or allow others to argue away. And I think a lot of us first became aware of this when we saw a kind of bureaucratization of misogyny and the use of language to describe women. So if you're born female, it's now considered bigoted if you call yourself a woman. If you say I'm a pregnant woman, no, you're supposed to say you're a pregnant person. If you say I breastfed my child, no, you're supposed to call yourself a chest feeder. You're supposed to call yourself a person with a cervix. All of these are ways of leeching the idea of biological female reality out of uh, our culture. And they are very dangerous for a couple of reasons. One is that there's an incredibly motivated uh, small but active, particularly on social media, group of transgender activists who are very keen on seeing the elimination of womanhood in this way. They argue that biology is not real. It's it's a performance. It's something you can choose to do. And anyone who argues otherwise is a bigot. They argue that because of this, this claim that they make, that women-only spaces are, are discriminatory. So a women's prison, for example, is, is a discriminatory space if it doesn't allow trans women into it. Even though, as in the state of California, we now have California prison inmates suing the state because they're getting raped by a trans uh, female uh, prisoner who was put, put into their prison. It says that rape shelters, domestic violence shelters, these are not places where you can only allow biological women that is bigoted. So it's, it's and we have definitely seen this play out among children in schools with regard to bathrooms and locker rooms. So that is that for me was is the focus of, of the misogyny, because what you see activists doing is actually picketing women's rights organizations who, for example, try to combat domestic violence. They'll picket them with signs that say words that I'm not going to repeat here on the air, but that are in the piece if you want to read it. 
calling these women transphobic, calling them horrible terms that used to only be used by the worst and most virulent misogynists in our culture. Now, these are the folks who are being championed as the most, um, the ones who are pursuing genuine equality. I reject that thoroughly. I reject the harassment that people like as famous as J.K. Rowling, who's been harassed constantly for, for standing up to this argument, and the total average everyday, for example, lesbians who are harassed and told that they are mis transphobic because they are only sexually attracted to people who are born female. This is happening. It's happening a lot. And we're not, we, we have so far, there have been wonderful folks like Colin Wright, Abigail Schreier, others here in the U.S. who've really been at the forefront of combating this and they should be commended. But this is a fight that more um, everyday Americans are gonna find themselves having to have because it's, it's, it's getting into the culture without any sort of pushback. And I think we need to start a pushback. One of the best things in, in your piece is identifies the incentives <clears throat> to engage in the professional mm -hmm. incentives to pursue this, this lifestyle because it's not just about fulfillment, you know, individual fulfillment, which I, and I agree, I share your general apathy towards how other people want to live their lives it doesn't affect me at all, but it does affect me when it's used to ladder climb. Everybody knows about, you know, trans athletes, uh, men, biological men who become women, enter into a field of sport and then excel. But you had one of these um, really uh, interesting anecdotes that I hadn't heard before about a, a, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who transitioned and then all of a sudden, quote, was experiencing marginalization and vulnerability and shot right to the top of her field, all of a sudden having done nothing other than assume an identity that wasn't theirs and then re reap the social rewards and, and, and profound commercial success associated with their new identity. Yes, this was a this was a fascinating story. Uh, the tech bro failed tech bro. This is her own description of herself before she transitioned. A failed tech bro couldn't get businesses that were successful, transitioned, and then became the darling of kind of a, a kind of progressive Silicon Valley elite and its and its uh, handmaidens in the media to be suddenly oh suddenly this person has a unique insight into the women's experience in the workplace. Now I I have no problem with someone transitioning and saying wow this is what I learned now that I'm living as a woman. Fine. But she is now taking, first of all, she's she's lived as a woman for, you know, in a very small portion of her life, most of her life and, and very crucial moments of her life, such as puberty and young adulthood were spent as a male. So for her to then say, I'm going to now tell you all about what it's like to be a woman, I find that offensive. That's offensive to me as a woman because she doesn't actually understand that there was no humility in that statement. And she was professionally rewarded for it. The athletic stuff is is kind of horrifying to me as a, I have, I have sons who are athletes. The idea, if I had a, a daughter, I myself was an athlete in high school. If I was facing this as a, as a female athlete right now, particularly the elite college athletes that we see in, in things like swimming there, I, I cited a case about a swimmer in the university of Pennsylvania. He has swum. He's, he was a swimmer for the men's team for three years, transitioned to female and is now breaking every female swimming world record world record. We're not talking college records. He's faster than Katie Ledecky, who won the Olympics. He's faster than any woman in the pool. And so every single born female woman who stands on that block ready to swim knows she has zero chance of winning. She cannot beat a guy who lived most of his life and went through male puberty with all of its physiological advantages. That is unfair. And that puts women at a disadvantage that is unfair and that feminism spent centuries fighting against. Well, it's, it's also, it's, it's such a dismissal of um, everything that it has meant to be a, a female biologically. Um, and th that's 
that's a lot to dismiss because the the physical reality of uh, femaleness um, has been the very thing that has been exploited to abuse women, right? I mean, from the Stone Age on, it is it is you know the 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 the, the differential in physical strength is 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 kind of the uh, you know, it's the it's it's the tool by which you you can you can uh, subjugate a, a woman. Well, and this is a really important point because what I think the radical transgender activists have done is very clever. They have seized upon what has long been and continues to be an ongoing debate among women about biological essentialism. Right? You're absolutely right, Abe. Women's biological differences and supposed weaknesses, you know, there and the fact that they go through that they can have children and men can't. The fact that all of these physical and physiological differences were used for centuries to keep women down, to give to to prevent them from having opportunities and feminism fought that successfully making it and this tension about should we ignore the biological realities or should we embrace them and say actually it makes women stronger and better and better leaders that debate is ongoing what the transgender activists have done is basically say biology doesn't matter at all we can we are women too and it's not just we are women too and want to live as women it's the category of woman can no longer exist because now we inhabit it and we're not biologically female so it's bigoted to say that you you're only a woman if you have a cervix you're only a woman if you can give birth i just want to say at least men you know in the in the by the lights of a certain type of uh, activist uh men are toxic but they can keep their identity it's it's a bad one but they're not denied it entirely right well I mean, you know, we live in a moment in which we are told that if you are a white person who wants to write a novel from the perspective of a Latina or a black person, if you were William Styron today writing The Confessions of Nat Turner, that book would not be published. If you, if you want to imagine, if you want to do an, the imaginative work of writing or considering art in different ways about people that are not you, that you are the, a group that you are not a member of. You are, can, you are accused of cultural appropriation, of cultural negation, of cultural genocide. And here we have a situation in which people say, I can go, I can have surgery and take hormones. I can cut pieces off my body, add elements to my body, and take hormones that will suppress certain types of things in my body. And I will then redefine myself as entirely the equal of every, of everybody who was born this way. That is the ultimate appropriation. That is the ultimate negation. There can be nothing even remotely comparable. I mean, how is it not like taking, you know, uh, taking some kind of drug, you know, like wearing, putting bronzer on your skin and then saying you're black, you know, like John Howard Griffin did or, or Rachel Dolezal. It's exactly the same thing, except that it requires a level of deranged commitment, let's say. I mean, it requires a level of horrifying commitment to actually, if you go the whole way, do this these surgical interventions and, you know, screw around with your body chemistry and all of that simply to claim this different identity. But we are in no other aspect of contemporary 
life in the sort of radical view of the way the, uh, the a society is supposed to be organized. In no other place are you permitted to appropriate the identity of anyone else except in the realm of gender, which is, of course, that's it. That's the, the that's the big two. Like there's male and there's female. Then there's this t- incredibly tiny number of people who are both. The right? irony I mean, is that race is mutable. <laughs> race race exists along a spectrum. Some people identify as something one yes. one day they'll identify as something else the next. This is documented. It's not yes. something that you can debate. And right. and it's you know it's 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 messy. It's nuanced. Gender is completely binary. Well, and At there no is... point can you have a surgery that will give you female reproductive organs. You will not be able to to bring a, a child to bear ever. Right. Well, and the reason I focus on misogyny in particular and on trans women is that they are there are far more trans women than trans men. I don't know if people that that I looked at the statistics that that's the direction of of movement from uh, one sex to the other in terms of you know what people want to embrace. And it is it, I don't think this could have happened except at this cultural moment because it's driven by what I think is a really good thing, which is people wanting to be tolerant. And tolerance is important. And I you know I feel I I train with people who are who are trans. I have shared locker rooms and bathrooms. I have no problem with that. I will say this, though. There are differences when it comes to really vulnerable female populations, women who are the victims of rape and domestic abuse or women who are in prison. There's a difference when we're talking about children and about what children, uh, their comfort level and their uh, desire for privacy, which must be protected by the adults in their lives. Um, those That's a different calculation. But I do think this all genuinely sprang from tolerance. There are plenty of trans women, for example, who are horrified by what the activists are doing, but they don't feel like they can speak out. Because if you speak out about this, you suffer the fate of someone like J.K. Rowling, who literally had activists dox her online. They showed up at her house and took pictures of themselves to show her street address to encourage people to come and threaten her. And she receives death threats. Many of the active, many of the lesbian activists in the UK in particular, who I spent a lot of time uh, reading about the work they're doing, they many of them had to form breakaway groups because they were no longer welcome in the LGBTQIA trans heavy groups that had, had formed. They receive regular death threats. They're called Hitler for saying they want to date biological women. I mean, it's horrifying. It's bullying. It is the absolute opposite of tolerance. It's intolerance, but it's intolerance. Argue. It's very Orwellian to hear all these trans activists talk about, we need more tolerance. Oh, we have to stop trans genocide. Meanwhile, they're physically threatening women who say, I don't agree with you. Well, I think, I mean, yes, I think there is obviously a contingent uh, out there who are uh, supportive of trans rights uh, because they genuinely believe in tolerance. But I think with all such issues on the left, the the animating force behind this and behind um, other things are are the people who are in it to tell other people what they have to do, what they have to accept, um, what they are not allowed to say um, and how they are supposed to think. And then there are the people who say who are go along and with it and say, well, I'm just in because I I, I don't want to hurt anyone. I, I, I believe everyone should. Have. So it always takes both both parts. But I, I think the, the ones who have sort of shaped the crusade are not in it for tolerance. And I think ultimately, getting back to the theme of misogyny, what we have here is a form of woman hatred, not just, you know, the attempt to expropriate what is female for people who are male or in order to, you know, win swimming 
you know, swimming trophies and things like that. It is the idea that being a woman uh, is not sufficient unto the day, is not a miracle, is not a, you know, one of the miracles of existence, is not something to be, you know, celebrated, to be, to have girls, young girls, I have two daughters, you know, brought up to believe that, you know, not only are they equal to men and all of that, but that, but that they, they possess a, they possess a, they are, they are creatures of biological wonderment who, who, you know, who can, you know, essentially uh, incept and help and, you know, and, and, and nurture and incubate and create life and all of that. And now we're just in a world in which it's like, I mean, not to be too like ridiculously dismissive. I want to wear a dress. I want to wear makeup. I don't like competing with all these guys. I don't like it. I, or if you want to go to the real psychological, then you have the, of course, as my friend Paul McHugh would put it, you know, this is, this, this can be viewed as an extreme form of body dysmorphia disorder or gender dysmorphia disorder. And what you look at is people who are in existential pain an agonizing existential pain with a, with a psychological disability that makes them believe that they should be or are something that they are not in their essence. And what you're supposed to do is treat the pain. You are supposed to treat the pain to help them find, integrate themselves into what they really are and who they are at root instead of um, surrendering to their pain and trying to alleviate it by validating it in the most extreme way. And this is a very complicated issue. And again, nobody wants to be intolerant of anybody, but just like, you know, you said, I want to be intolerant. I want to be nice or something like that. It's the question of the overall effect of this society wide on hundreds of millions of girls as they grow up. Like is, is, is there, um, is there a world in which they believe that they are not valued and what they are at root and at essence is not valued? And the answer is yes. Now I know it goes both ways. Our friend Abigail Schreier has written a book about, about girls who now are very much pursuing, you know, uh, trans options or the trans ideology, uh, over the last really a sort of epidemic over the last five or six years. So that's a whole other subject, but it goes to the point that there seems to be some real difficulty in valuing what it means to be, to be female. And to say that what we are root down to our chromosomes, right? I'm XY, Christina's XX. That is what we are. That, that defines us before we have a brainstem. And that that's mutable, right? But that I don't know what, like that you that you don't want to eat a cow is not mutable. I mean, it is, and and in that sense, it is a it is a it is a. I mean, this is the now to get really pretentious. It's like the most radical form of Cartesianism, which is the worst philosophical tendency in all of mankind, right? Which is all I am is my thoughts. My thoughts make me who I who I am. And uh, the world and everything in it should conform to my thought process. That is what, and, and, and so, you know, radical mind-body dualism, radical uh, refusal to accept reality for itself and to work from that upward. 
And, you know, I mean, there's a reason our society is in crisis and it's in crisis because it no longer, it, it, it now believes it's fallen prey to this seduction that, you know, that we get to choose whatever we are. And like all choices, like a, like a, like a Soviet dissident who leaves Russia and left Russia in the 1980s and comes to the United States and goes to a supermarket for the first time and sees 500 boxes of cereal and has an anxiety attack and, you know, has to leave and, you know, and, 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 and do deep breaths because the idea that you can choose from this endless menu, we are not meant to be able to choose every aspect of our lives. Uh, But that I, I, sorry to interrupt you, but that is exactly why one other aspect of this, which does not get enough play is so important. And you've hit upon it really well here. It is a philosophy of privilege at its root, because only the privilege can actually have the both the wherewithal, the the funds, the resources to to change themselves in this way and insist everyone around them conform to it. It's the women prisoners, born biological female prisoners, who don't they they have it then imposed on them because if the elite and the powerful and the privileged insist that this is the way it must be. It's the powerless who suffer. It's similar to the kind of progressive crime theory, actually. It's a, and, and to Abe's point about it being a sort of overarching philosophy of totalitarian insistence on something that the average person knows to be untrue. It still has victims. It has victims. And the victims that we talk about when it comes to trans rights are always the trans people, which I understand. And there have been the, the, the mental health crisis in particular is worrisome. The, the challenges, particularly for young people who are going through these issues, those are serious and real, and we should not downplay those. But what we're talking about is a way for the society in general to conform to this extreme. And you see it not just with language, and it is here where the misogyny comes to the fore. The Lancet is writing about pregnant people and people with cervixes, but they have no problem writing about men with prostates. That's unfair. That's unequal. That's granting to men a biological identity and reality that they are denying to women. That's wrong. Our friend David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, gets at some of these ideas, though it is a book about economics, because it's a book about faith, and it's a book about human flourishing, and it's a book about how those are expressed in our public activity, much of which goes under the term of economic exchange. But in a world in which we are desperate, desperately need human flourishing and ideas like the ones we've been exploring here really challenge the possibility of human flourishing, a book like David's, which you can get as a stocking stuffer or a Christmas present or what have you, um, do it today. It's the 13th of December, got 12 days till Christmas, uh, is really a first rate way to explore 250 ideas page by page with great quotes from leading philosophers and thinkers that will bring these connections together. That's there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths by David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N from the Bonson group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. And let me also talk to you about ExpressVPN because using the internet without ExpressVPN is like leaving your keys in your car while you run into the gas station for a snack. Most of the time, you're probably fine. But what if you come back to see someone driving off with your car? Well, look, every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data and run away with it. 
doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone just like turning a key in a car lock you just some cheap hardware is needed a smart 12 year old can do it and your data is valuable hackers can make up a thousand dollars per person selling personal info on the dark web so what expressvpn does is it creates an encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your sensitive data it would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past expressvpn's encryption you fire up the app, click one button to get protected. It's so easy to use and phones, laptops, tablets, and more. It works on all of them so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash commentary. Uh, before we go, I just I wanted to make one uh, point uh, about we have a, another piece in the in the in the January issue by Eli Lake, which we call the uh, uh, Russia Gates bitter clingers, and it's about how the uh, exposure by the John Durham investigation and others about the utter factitiousness and uh, dissimulations in the in the um, Steele dossier uh, have nonetheless inclined a whole bunch of people who bet their who bet their careers and and their and their hope and vested all their hopes in the idea that it would come to pass that the world would see that Donald Trump was an agent of the Kremlin uh, that got him elected and that he was just basically Vladimir Putin's cat's paw and that there was going to be proof of this have basically said that uh, none of these revelations, um, you know, matters because uh, he was anyway. He was, and he was, and if you don't know that he was, then you really should. And there is a deranged piece by David Ignatius in the Washington Post. Deranged. A deranged piece. David Ignatius writes lousy spy novels and was a lousy Russian correspondent and is a 75-year-old blatherskite. And he wrote a piece in which he says that the reason that Vladimir Putin is challenging Ukraine and is amassing troops on the Ukraine border in order to invade Ukraine, it's Trump's fault. It's all Trump's fault because you see Trump was his cat's paw. And so he, through the magic of not being president anymore, so that there was maybe a pause for four years, how how if he wanted Ukraine and Trump was his cat's paw, he could have invaded Ukraine during the Trump administration and Trump would have said, that's fine with me. That didn't happen. Biden pulls out of Afghanistan and three months later, Putin is like amassing 200,000 troops on the Ukraine border. And this is Trump's fault. I don't even want to call this Trump derangement syndrome. How about you're an idiot, David Ignatius syndrome. How about shut up already and retire syndrome? Who could, how could you write such a piece? How, I mean, there are many things to blame Trump for, including his assault on our election processes and all of that. But you can't blame him for Biden pulling out of Afghanistan and then, and then Putin saying, I guess this is my main chance now. I mean, who could, okay, can somebody, I know none of you actually wants to defend David Ignatius, and I'm being very ad hominem, but I can't help it. No, I mean, somebody say nothing, something. there's nothing to defend. I, I think I brought that, that piece to everyone's attention because I was flabbergasted by the thesis. It, you, can't, you can't relate the thesis in any way that would read to a neutral observer like a fair assessment of the piece because the thesis is crazy. It's just manic. Um, 
which is why, one of the reasons why I think your criticisms are mostly justified. Although <laughs> I certainly wouldn't go so far as to, to, to say somebody should be drummed out of the business. Nevertheless, I said he should retire. I don't think anyone should ever be drummed out of anything. The theory was something along the lines of the Ukraine call for which the president was impeached the first time, um, which had to do with trying seeking the influence of the Ukrainian government to uh, advance a political objective domestically. And that sort of in its multiple degrees of separation and and filtered through a, a mind that is consumed with antipathy for Donald Trump got get you to the idea that well the Putin has an incentive structure now to to pursue his territorial ambitions and he's he can can do so without disregarding uh, whatever I don't even know it's impossible to say it's a silly stupid piece um but it's reflective of the the real crisis on the part of, back to the crisis on the part of Democrats that they're facing a reckoning for at the ballot box next next November. We talked a lot about domestic policy, but we haven't talked about foreign policy very much. The very same people who presided over the last invasion of Ukraine are back in power now. Um, and the window of opportunity is evident to all revanchist powers, not just in Moscow, but in Beijing, how Donald Trump explains Chinese, uh, you know, saber rattling. I don't quite understand. Uh, but they're, they can't reckon with the real fact of the matter, which is that Joe Biden has been a terrible foreign policy mind, ter- terrible foreign policy mind, and is a terrible foreign policy president. And nothing's going right. No, anywhere. Nothing's going right. And they and, you know, so they have to change the subject of conversation up, up to and including how media criticism works. Now, everybody who's in the business of media criticism is now pounding the drum, telling everybody who reports for a living that you can't be objective. Because to be objective is to give license to a political party that isn't that is a threat to democracy. And if they succeed at the ballot box next November, America's doomed. They're having this conversation very openly. And under the assumption, yes. I guess, that we're not listening. We're listening, but you know, but you know, I guess we're all in the we're all in the thrall, the pay of uh, of Putin. So it's that simple. We're just we're all working for Putin and eager for there to be an invasion of Ukraine because, you know, left to their own devices, left to Jake Sullivan would really, really rather Putin not invade Ukraine. I mean, all the concessions that were given to Donald or um, uh, Vladimir Putin over the course of the Trump presidency, none of them, and there are a few, very few, but none of them even approach blinking over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which severed Eastern Europe's access to Russian gas and makes them subservient to Moscow and and Berlin, by the way, which has never had any particular appetite for confronting Moscow, but certainly doesn't now. And they were given the green light by oh, Joe Biden. So now Joe Biden saying, oh, I'm going to leverage this thing I already gave you for economic consequences if you invade, if you invade, as though that's basically saying, well, listen, we're not going to do anything up to and until you do invade, which right. is not deterrence. Okay, so that's Eli Lake's uh, Russiagate's Bitter Clingers, which does not deal with David Ignatius's uh, head-stopping moron, idiot, factitious. And by the way, if he's not a moron, then he is uh, corrupt, slimy, and and uh, and demagogic. So I I don't know. He pick one or the other, basically. But he doesn't go into that. I did, but this piece is a fascinating examination of how to look at uh, how to look at the the Durham revelations. Uh, it's at the, it's on our website at 
commentary.org, along with Christine's piece on the new misogyny. We give you a few free reads. We ask you to subscribe. You should subscribe to Commentary if you are not subscribing already. It's the best read you'll ever have, and we need you to help support us as we need your elemosinary generosity in your end of year giving. And we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.